we will uh, have a, a short meeting after church for our budget issue for next year. Let's pray. I'm most eternal and everlasting, Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and your mercy. Thankful that we serve a living God, faithful and loving and caring. We thank you. Thank you that you are so patient with us. You do not deal with us in the way we deserve. We are thankful that, in fact, many, many times you show us how gracious you are, even when we don't seem to be fully devoted to you, that we ought to put other things ahead of you. Yet you are gracious. You continue to nod us. You lead us in a way that will bring glory to you. So we have gathered this morning to study a portion of your word. We are realizing that no human mind is able to perceive anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is a request that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will open our minds to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. If this is a request in Christ's name, Amen. We're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. This is uh, one of those that uh, I need to tell you to put your concentration cap. Ask the Holy Spirit to cause you to concentrate. Because I'm going to be dealing with some arguments. That if you blink, if you let your mind wander, you'll be lost. So you need to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you the focus. It's not that it's a difficult thing. It's just that it's a lot of argument that requires proper concentration. Anyway, he reads, As it is, there are many parts that one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that each parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now today, or this morning will be, our last study of this section of 1 Corinthians 12, verses, 20 through, uh, verses 12 through 26. So let me recap though, uh, what we have studied so far. The overall message of this section is that unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ, that is, the church of Christ. Now this message places three responsibilities on you as a believer. The first responsibility, based on the subsection of verses 12 and 13, 
is that you should recognize the unity and diversity in the church of Christ. The second derived from the subsection of verses 14 and, uh, through 19 is that you should focus on facts stated about members of the church of Christ that we indicated are five. The first fact is that the church of Christ consists of several members. The second is that no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. The third is that each member is necessary for the functioning of the church of Christ or the universal church of Christ. The fourth is that it is God who places each member of the church in the church to function as he wants. The fifth fact is that there will have been no church of Christ as we know it today if it consists only of one member. The third responsibility based on the subsection of verses 20 through 26 of the First Corinthians 12 is this, that you should be careful how you treat the members of the body of Christ. We indicated that there are five reasons that are necessary to bear in mind to help each believer carry out this responsibility. A first reason, you should be careful how you treat members of the body of Christ is because of the importance of unity and diversity in the church of Christ. A second reason is because each member depends on the order. A third reason is because even those uh, considered weak are indispensable or are necessary members of the body of Christ. A fourth is that there are certain members of the body of Christ that require special attention. A fifth reason is that God constituted or composed the church the way he wants and for his purpose. Now a first stated purpose of God composing the church the way he did is to ensure there will be no division in the church of Christ. A second purpose stated for God composing the church the way he did is to ensure that that we care for each other or have concern for each other. Now believers having concern for each other is explained as sharing in negative and positive experiences of a fellow believer given by using two conditional clauses in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26 that we are studying. Now the concept of sharing in the negative experience of fellow believers is stated in the first conditional clause of 1 Corinthians 12.26 when it says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Now this clause implies that believers are to suffer together with each other so that the suffering 
of a particular member in a local church should be the concern of the entire local body of Christ. Now this implication raises the question of how a believer or a local church should suffer together with a suffering believer. Now to answer this question, we took a detour to consider the doctrine of suffering. Now after this detour then, we are now in a position to answer the question of how a believer or a local church will suffer together with another believer suffering. Now recall that we indicated that suffering as used as we use it in our study of the doctrine of suffering, if you recall is and I quote the definition, any experience or pain or distress evident both physically and emotionally. That's how we define suffering. Now this being the case, it is difficult then to conceive of how a believer could share the physical or emotional pain of another believer so it can be said that the believer suffers with another believer. Now take for example, if you are having headache, there's no way for another person to feel headache so as to share in your suffering. Consequently, to understand what a believer is expected to do when another believer is suffering, we need to revisit the word suffer again in the conditional clause of 1 Corinthians 12.26 where it says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Now we indicated that the Greek word sum pasco so translated suffer is really used twice in the Greek New Testament. Although the word is used outside the New Testament with the meaning to sympathize. To sympathize. Now the other usage though of our Greek word is in Romans chapter 8 verse 17. Romans Romans chapter 8 verse 17 It is Now if we are children Then we are heirs Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ If indeed we share in the suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Now the Greek word is translated share in suffering. That is to suffer along with another. That's the way it's translated here in Romans 8 uh, verse 17. As well as in 1 Corinthians 12 26 that we're studying. Now it can even be understood to mean to have the same thing happen to you. Or to one. It can have that meaning, to have the same thing happen to one. Now this later sense 
makes it even more difficult to see how a believer could have the same thing that another believer is experiencing happen to the individual. Now, so using the illustration that I had just mentioned, it is difficult to see how you can uh, have the same headache another person is experiencing uh, or that to happen to you. If you begin, even if you begin to bang your head on a hard object, you may get injured, but that does not guarantee that you have the same headache another person is experiencing. But notice what we are studying, we say, you suffer with that may experience something, so to say. Thus, it is difficult then to conceive how a believer can suffer together with another believer as part of the meaning of the Greek word as used in our passage of, of study. Nonetheless, since the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle, expects us to suffer with another believer, it seems then that there is an English word that is used in the Bible that best describes what it means to suffer with other believers' suffering. There has to be. So to me, it is the word compassion. The word compassion. Does when we have compassion, we will indeed suffer with our fellow believer in their suffering. When we have compassion. Now this may not may appear to some to be an overreach, since the word compassion is not really uh, it's not uh, a listed meaning in the le- lexicons of the Greek word used in the passage that we're considering. Because of that, we will spend some time to explain then the reason for our use of the word compassion as a word that adequately explains what is expected of believers in the clause of First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, when it says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Because I've said the one word that captured that whole thing is compassion. I'm going to now spend some time and look at that. Uh, that's why I say you need to focus from here on. Well, you have been focusing really, but just put it on the high again now. Now, to begin with, though, we should recognize that there are three words that are often used in the English in relationship to how one reacts to the suffering of others. There are three words. When you see people suffering, there are three words that describe how we humans can react. The three words are sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Those three words. Again, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Now, sympathy and compassion are found in our Hebrew scripture and in the Greek New Testament. 
but not the word empathy. Although some state that the concept found in the word empathy is found in the scripture. Now I want to be clear that I mean neither the word empathy nor empathize. Empathize is found in the Hebrew scripture or the Greek New Testament. Now, I made this point because the word empathize is used in the translation called the complete Jewish Bible. It's also used in in today's new international version and in the 2011 edition of the NIV in their translation of the Hebrew of I mean of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 that we'll refer to later. We'll get to that later on. Just to make you know they use that word empathize in these versions I've mentioned. Yet I have said it is a word not found in our Bible. In the Greek or Hebrew uh, text. So you say, but it's found in my English Bible. Yes. So that's why we need to go into all these details to explain. Now there is, there is probably a major reason the word empathy or empathize although often used in uh, social psychological context is not found in the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures. There's a reason for that. It is because of is let entrance into the English language. In other words, we'll say the word empathy, uh, they empathize, they lately entered into the English language. That's what I mean by that. Now, see the term empathy was coined only in the early 20th century where we are told that it played a great role in, and I quote, the metaphysical aesthetic speculations of rheumatism. End of quote. Now, nonetheless, since the appearance of the word in, in English, there seems to be a confusion between the use of the word empathy and sympathy. They are not the same thing. So, we need to be clear in the difference between the use of the word empathy and sympathy. And so we need to be clear in the difference between this word, especially since three English versions that we mentioned use the word uh, empathize in their translation of Hebrews 4.15 that we get to at the right time. And also, that word is used in the New English translation of the Septuagint, in that they use the word empathy in their translation of a passage I'm not going to read, I just mention it in passing. And that is Proverbs chapter 28, verse 8. There they use uh, the word uh, empathy, that is the New English translation of the uh, Septuagint. They use the word um, empathy, whereas most of our other English 
versions, including the New English Translation, they use the word kind or generous to translate the word that these uh, other versions put the word meaning uh, empathize. Anyway, the concise Oxford Dictionary has in differentiating between empathy and sympathy. Now, when I do this kind of thing, I have to stop and kind of remind you. Part of the problem we're facing today in this country and all over the world is meaning of words. People don't know meanings of words. I can use a different meaning and you think about a different thing. And we're not talking about the same thing. And so we misunderstand each other. But if we have the same meaning, at least we know if we agree or we don't agree, but at least it's a meaning. So it is important that when people talk to each other, they have the same common meaning, or what we call the common ground. So that we're all dealing with the same thing. And what that does also, it helps people to think. Because words, you think by words. And when people don't know the meaning, don't differentiate things, they have a modeled thinking. And that's why people are led by their emotions. People don't, very rarely do people today sit down and analyze what they have just heard, whether it's in the new media or somewhere else, to think through. Is that really true? Can that be really true? Because they just gear to just take whatever you take, you can think, and that is part of, part of it is because we're not being challenged, as I, I keep reminding you, to think. So here, we have the concise English dictionary helping us to differentiate the two words, empathy and sympathy. Now the dictionary that I've mentioned, the concise Oxford English dictionary, defines empathy as, and I quote, I'll be slow, because if you can go home and get it, <laughs> but quote, this is what it says. The ability to understand and share the feelings of another. End of quote. Again, this is what they say. The ability, that's empathy. They say the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. End of quote. So, if we put it in another way, it is really the ability to understand another person's thoughts and feelings in a situation from their point of view rather than your own. This is what we're saying. It's the other person. It's not how you perceive it. how that other person is perceiving it. This, in effect, is equivalent to what we say about putting on uh, oneself in someone's shoes or when, we, uh, when one says, I feel your pain. And we say that. Well, let me really illustrate what we mean. Suppose you see a roach crawl on someone's arm. Depending on how you are to those things, you may freak out anyway. Well, if you now, let's just say, suppose you see that, and you immediately feel a sensation over your arm, 
Or, you imagine what a dislike for that will occur. That will be empathy. Even though you never really, never touch you, but you have that feeling sensation because you see crawling on somebody's arm. And that's empathy. That's empathy. Of course, it's not always uh, a negative thing, but it can also be positive. If you attend the graduation from college of a child or a friend, and you have the same excitement as a graduate, you have demonstrated empathy. On the other hand, the same dictionary defines sympathy as, and I quote, feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Again, let me quote. Feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's Misfortune. End of quote. So then suppose your friend's parents died. If you are moved by what has happened, although you are not experiencing the pain of your friend, that is sympathy. So be that then as you may, we indicated that the word sympathy is one used in the, script, in the Hebrew scripture and the Greek New Testament scripture, where we have its illustrations. Now, these illustrations give us then more understanding of the range of words that may be associated with sympathy. When Nahash, or Nahash, king of the Ammonites, died, King David decided to sympathize with his son by sending some of his men to his son, although their intention was eventually misunderstood, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 2. Second Samuel, chapter 10, verse 2. Second Samuel, chapter 10, verse 2 reads, David thought, I will show kindness to Hanum, son of Nehash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites. Now that's the verbal phrase to express his sympathy. It's more literally to console, to console. Implying that the Hebrew word, nakam, translated express sympathy in the NIV, may mean to console or to comfort. Now the three friends of Job, on learning about his suffering, 
came to sympathize with him. As we read in Job chapter 2 verse 11. And hold on to Job once you get it. Job chapter 2 verse 11. It is when Job's, Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nehematite, had about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now the word sympathize here is translated from a, a Hebrew word that meant into comfort, to comfort or to sympathize. Now the meaning to comfort of the word is really used in Job 42 verse 11. Job 42 verse 11. Job 42 verse 11 reads, All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Now in the New Testament, we find the verbs uh, sympathize used in two passages. It is used in connection with Jesus' response to the believers Situation in temptation. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. I mean, sorry, verse 15. It should be verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And hold on to that, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It is, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now the other passage is related to the response of believers, to their fellow believers who were suffering, as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. 
Hebrews 10 verse 34. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 reads, You sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. Now the word sympathize in Hebrews 10 verse 34 is translated from a Greek uh, verb, sympatheo, sympatheo, that really appears only twice in the Greek New Testament. Both, of course, in the book of Hebrews, that is, here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and chapter 10, verse 34. Now, the translators of the NIV use the meaning to sympathize, to translate the Greek verb in both of its occurrences, Although, as we mentioned previously, the 2011 edition uh, of the NIV then used the word empathize, not sympathize, empathize in Hebrews 4 verse 15. Nonetheless, the word can mean to suffer along with someone, and so it means to suffer with or to share in the sufferings. Now, another meaning of the Greek verb is to share someone's feeling in the sense of being sympathetic with. Does means to have or to show sympathy for or to sympathize with. Does then we see that the Greek word used in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 and that's used in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26 have a common meaning then of either to suffer with or to sympathize. Doesn't the fact that the context of Hebrews 10 verse 34 is suffering. The meaning of the Greek word adopted in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 could also apply to 1 Corinthians 12 26. That is also concerned with suffering. Now I'm saying that in effect that if the meaning to sympathize is adopted in Hebrews 10 verse 34, that such a meaning could also apply in 1 Corinthians 12 26. Could apply. However, now that's argument. However, there is a problem with this because the Greek word used in Hebrews 10 verse 34 more commonly has the meaning to share in the suffering. Thus, the 2011 edition of the NIV, instead of the meaning, sympathize, used in, uh, in the 1984 edition, used the expression, suffered along. That's how they translated, suffered along. Hence, really, we, we rule out the use of the meaning to sympathize, to describe the Greek word used in the clause of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Also, since the word empathy is not so much a word found in the scripture, 
then we use the word compassion as a word that best interprets what is meant in the expression suffers with. That is the meaning of the Greek word used in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26. So we are zeroing in. We are eliminated. If this is possible, but because of this, it's not, we're not going to adapt that meaning. So then, we again landed with the meaning, if we eliminate sympathy, empathy, the only word left again, again, is compassion. So we say, it is compassion that best describes 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26. Now there are several reasons for using the word compassion to describe what is expected of believers in their relationship to fellow believers who are suffering. Because remember what we are looking at is the literal say, suffer with, with your fellow believer. And I have argued, how is he going to suffer with somebody? You can't feel what they are feeling in a sense. But, if you come to the issue of compassion, then you can see that makes sense. So that's what we are saying that we use the meaning compassion. And there's several reasons for this. First, our word compassion comes from a Latin word, compati. Compati. C-O-M-P-A-T-I. Compati. That means to suffer with. See? To suffer with. Now the Webster Dictionary indicates that it is a word in the 14th century that had a sense of, quote, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. End of quote. Okay, let me say that. This is what the uh, website dictionary says about it. I say, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Now, this will certainly be more in keeping with what the Holy Spirit wants believers to do when they see their fellow believers suffering. So, it's no wonder that compassion is associated with sympathy in the instruction regarding the attitude of believers towards each other in First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 8. Again, we, my first reason I'm giving you is that word compassion. The Webster Dictionary tells us because the word comes from Latin that means to suffer with, with the idea of trying to do something about it. First Peter 3 verse 8 reads, Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. See, that is a command to us. Be compassionate. That's what the Holy Spirit expects of us as believers. Be compassionate and humble. Second, really, the word compassion is a word that is predominantly used of God. As we may gather 
from the use of the word in the scripture. Of the 63 times the word compassion is used in the NIV in the Old Testament, only in 10 of these is it used for humans, which means it's 53 for God. Likewise, of the 13 occurrences of the word in the NIV in the New Testament, only in three passages does the word apply to humans, which means the other 10 apply to God. Now, interestingly though, it is a word that the Lord used to describe himself in his own words. Now, that's one of those passages that's amazing to me. We read the prophets and everyone uh, write about what God says about himself. But there's one passage God says, this is who I am. I mean, in terms of what I do. And that is, we find that word used in Exodus chapter 34, verse 10. Now what I'm saying is, see, we read the rest of the Bible. It be describing what God, the Holy Spirit says about God. But this is one place where we see Yahweh himself describe himself. And that's fascinating. And he does that using our word. He says, uh, Exodus 34, oh, sorry, Exodus 34, please look at verse 6, not 10. Exodus 34, verse 6 reads, And he passed in front of Moses, that is Yahweh, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Abandoning in love and faithfulness. That's what God is saying about himself. So he says here, look at the first thing. Compassionate. So you see how important that is in describing God. He's compassionate. And I'm sure all of you uh, who really are serious about your spiritual life, you will appreciate that. That he's compassionate. Because we fail him in ways that he just unimaginable. If he wasn't that kind of God... None of us will be even breathing today. But he's compassionate. So God's compassion is evident in his response to those who are afflicted or who are suffering. As we read in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 13. Isaiah 49 verse 13. 13. Isaiah 49 verse 13. It is shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song. O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Will have compassion on his afflicted ones. So, if we are to be imitators of God, as the Holy Spirit had commanded us, that we should be imitators of God. 
If that is going to be the case, then we are to be compassionate toward our fellow believers, especially in suffering. So, because it's a word that describes God, we argue it is the best word, the best word to use in 1 Corinthians 12.26 to describe suffering with another believer. Third, compassion is an action-oriented word. Compassion is an action-oriented word as we will demonstrate. Now, God's promise of restoration of Israel, which involves him caring or acting, is related to his compassion, as we may gather from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Now, this, there are some words, the words, many words that were commanded in the scripture, usually they are action oriented words, like love. It's an action oriented word. Compassion is one of those. So, here we can begin to see it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 3 says, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. Look at what happens next. As a result of having compassion, this is what he says, And gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. So that's an action oriented word. Having compassion. Now the Lord Jesus healed out of compassion. As we may read from Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. And uh, uh, hold on to Matthew because we're also going to go to another passage in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 reads, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Look at what happened next. And healed their sick. Compassion goes with action. Now when he, the Lord Jesus Christ, fed a crowd of over 4,000 men, really, it was a demonstration of his compassion. As we read in Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Matthew, chapter 15, verse 32. It is, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. 
They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. So, because of compassion, he fed the many thousands of people that came. Compassion. So, what we are saying is a compassion is a, an action oriented word. You can't say you have compassion on somebody and you don't do something about it. If you say that's not compassion, it's an action oriented word. Now, it's not only in the physical needs of people that Jesus Christ demonstrates compassion, but also in their spiritual needs, as evident from the fact that it was compassion that moved him to teach people, as we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. It reads, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like Sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So my thing though is those who call those of us who call ourselves pastors, if we have compassion, we have to teach those who shepherd. I mean teaching means telling them the truth. They don't want to hear it too bad. You still have compassion. When you have compassion, you show it by action. And the way we do it teach people. They may resist it. That's okay. Sooner or later, God will open their minds. Anyway, so then, the display of compassion of the Lord Jesus to the suffering of people supporting our assertion that to suffer with other believers will require compassion as a practical way of doing what is expected of believers. Now we have uh, cited examples that involve God or the Lord Jesus to prove that compassion is an action-oriented word. Now the nature of compassion may also be noted from what humans do or what they fail to do. Now Yahweh described to Israel what will happen to them when they fail to obey the terms of his covenant with them. He will punish them with lack of food that men who are prone to show compassion to their children by providing for them will fail to do so, indicating lack of compassion as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 54 through 55. Deuteronomy chapter 28 
verses 54 and 55. There we're going to see this is what a, what somebody who is compassionate does. But when the person seems to be compassionate because of judgment that God has brought on a, a group of people, then they will fail to do what they're supposed to do. So here he says, even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. Now this is what is going to happen. So he showed that there's no compassion. He says, and he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he's eating. That judgment will involve cannibalism. So, say so it will be all he has left the cause, all because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of your cities. In other words, you have heard stories of people involving cannibalism because they are starving. Somebody died, they ate the person instead of burying. Yeah, you think it's strange? Where are you? Are you living in the wall? I mean, it does happen. I mean, you say, I've never heard about it, really. Do you listen to some of the things that go around you on this planet? Yeah. When Israel was really judged, they did that. Because there was no food. And at one point, one woman said, well, let's eat my child today. Tomorrow we eat yours. And he said, okay. They killed the child, eat, eat. And then when it was time for it, she wouldn't do that. And that took up the case to the king and so on. Anyway, so this is what someone with compassion will feed the children. But if a person doesn't have compassion, they won't do that. Now, not this is because God has brought some judgment on the people. Anyway, the compassion of the father in the parable of the so-called prodigal son, or as I prefer, when we studied the book of Luke, I preferred it to describe it as a compassionate father. The parable of the compassionate father is shown to be action-oriented because the man, the father, ran to meet his wayward son as we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. It is so, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Action, action, action. That's compassion. It has to be action-oriented. So the point really we are making is that the concept of sharing in the negative experience of a fellow believer Stated in the first 
conditional clause of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Requires for us to be compassionate to those suffering. That's all we are going through all that. Now, so the thing is, how then should we go about suffering with other believers? Or be compassionate towards such individuals? The answer is that it all depends on the nature of the suffering. Now recall, we have already considered the various kinds of suffering. So, the way we suffer with or show compassion to a fellow believer suffering depends on the kind of suffering. If the suffering is physical, we show compassion by taking actions that will reveal our concern for our fellow believers. If the suffering is concerned with, let's say, illness, then one way to show compassion is to pray for that believer who is suffering from illness. Now this we learn from what the psalmist stated about his own answered prayer for the sick. As we read in Psalm 35 verse 13. Psalm 35 verse 13. Psalm 35 verse 13 reads, Yet, when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, which means he had compassion, so he prayed for this who were sick. Now the psalmist would not have described what he did when his prayer was not answered, if it was not out of compassion that he prayed for those who are ill, probably those who are closer to him. So then, we contain that an action one should take to show compassion for a believer who, uh, whose suffering is due to illness is to pray. That's the beginning point. Of course, it is possible that the believer suffering may not be aware that you are praying for the individual. And so, there may be need for the second action. This, the required second action that will prove com, uh, compassion or suffering with another believer is to visit such a person provided the person is not suffering from infectious disease. Now you see, if I just make statement, people just, you know, people don't know much of the Bible, so they run with one part. Because the Bible is very clear to Israel, if a person is suffering from infection, quarantine that person. So, if that is the case, if a person is suffering from infection, you can, that's no need to visit. Other than that, you visit the person. Now, visiting the sick is an important action that when Jacob was sick, we read of his son, uh, Joseph, visiting him, as stated in Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. 
Genesis chapter 48 verses 1 and 2. It reads, Genesis 48, verses 1 and 2 read, Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Now I can tell you, I know this. If you haven't been there, which I think almost everyone here, maybe a few people, maybe exception, almost everyone hasn't got there yet. Unless you have got to where you are old aged, then you will not know what happened here. See, this man was lying in bed, but as soon as he heard that the sun was coming, oh, he found strength to come up, get out of the bed, so to say. There is something about visiting an old person. And I've told you many times, if you have your parents still living, there's nothing you can give them better than going to check up on the brick line. Nothing better. Because that, that brings some kind of life to them you, you can't even imagine. They may not show you, depending on who they are, but inwardly they are, they are appreciating it. Anyway, so this is what happened to here when he said, Israel rallied his strength. He found strength in that visit, even the whole sick. Now, that visiting a sick believer is a way though, to demonstrate compassion is implied in what the Lord stated in Matthew chapter 25 verse 36. Matthew, chapter 25, verse 36. Matthew, chapter 25, verse 36. It reads, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. Now this the expression look after me is translated from a Greek word that also may mean to visit. To visit. That is to go of course to see a person with the intention of rendering help to that individual. Now this meaning of visiting with the intent to help is reflected in Moses' visit to suffering Israelites in Egypt as stated in Acts chapter 7 verse 23. We're looking at time. Let's take a break and after break we'll read it. <laughs> 